Welcome to The Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, March 14th. As promised, it's a two-mini break Monday for all of you listeners as we try to play catch-up on all of the action happening at Indian Wells. And as I said on our first podcast, if you're going to try and do that, you better have some extraordinary guests to help you do so. And that's who I have joining us on today's podcast to help us break down all of the action that's happened over the first few days in Indian Wells. Of course, you know him as an editorial producer for all things tennis.com, tennis channel, a returning champion here on our Crack Racket shows. It's our friend David Kanyev. David, welcome back to the show. I am immensely grateful for your patience. I'm not going to tell the listeners what I put you through today, but immensely grateful for you taking the time to join us on the show. How are you doing, my friend? Doing well. I'm really glad to see you. So I can finally ask you, how did you get this number? <laughs> uh, Westoff gave it to me again. Super producer Daniel Westoff's got it all. And again, because of the technology setup right now, I am set up and I have David on a big television screen. This is the way you were meant to be displayed. You're TV ready, my friend. It should go from editorial producer to tennis uh, tennis channel talent on screen talent uh, with from the looks I'm getting. I definitely, I'm definitely ready for the big screen. I'm ready for prime time. This is my moments. I have so many people I'd like to thank, but for, in the meantime, I'm really looking forward to getting into this, uh, yeah. this action with you. Enough court seven. It's time to put you on center court. But of course, as always, I appreciate you taking the time. And we always want to have you on when we've got this much tennis to discuss because we can hit a broad range of topics. Now we've got 45 minutes on the clock, so we're going to have to hit things quickly. Uh, but of course, there have been so many developments both on and off the court at Indian Wells. Want to talk about them here. Here today, of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out on the Mini Break podcast is because of the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point. You all know the deal. If you need to update your own equipment, do it at the best prices available with our friends at Tennis Point. You go to tennis-point.com right now. Use our promo code CR15. Not only will you let them know we sent you there, you'll get 15% off all sale items, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. What tennis ball shortage, David? I don't know what you're talking about. Not with our friends at Tennis Point. They've got you covered. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, again, Lots for us to discuss here on today's show. I want to start with a match that actually unfolded here on Monday, a match I know you, I believe, are writing about if you haven't already hit publish for tennis.com. That, of course, is now former world number one, Daniil Medvedev, knocked off today in three sets by an informed Gael Monfils. Now, you know, we can talk about the Monfils aspect of the equation as well. But as you look at this result for Medvedev, is this just simply another byproduct of these conditions at Indian Wells do not favor his game? Is there a broader struggle we should see here now post Indian Wells, the losses in Acapulco here at Indian Wells as well? How are you feeling about Medvedev coming out of this one? It's a weird one because it's one of those things where you feel like, you know, Daniel Medvedev, Daniel Medvedev is so successful on hard courts. This feels like just another opportunity for him to be racking up big points. And yet this is his fifth appearance at the BNP Paribas Open. And he has yet to reach the quarterfinals. He has played 26 different hard court tournaments in his career per uh, Russian connoisseur Oleg. I highly recommend following him on Twitter at Anna K underscore forever. He has played 26 hard court tournaments in his career. Of those 26, he is only not made it past the quarterfinals in two of them. That is Dubai and Indian Wells. And we're seeing that continuing to play out on 
Monday against Gael Monfils, despite winning 11 points in a row to win that first set, you felt like he's maybe be figuring things out, you know, the confidence of being a new number one, reigning U.S. Open champion. Again, just another hardcore tournament for him. But the way Monfils was able to pick off uh, would-be winners from maybe at, at all angles of the court, the surface, the conditions just do not provide uh, Daniel with the stick on his ground surface that he is used to. It's, it's almost like seeing him on clay when, when he lost in Madrid last spring. Just he was going for it, really putting his whole body into some of these shots. And they were not. He wasn't terminating rallies and it wasn't for lack of trying. And so I definitely think there's something to be said about the conditions for Daniel. And, and that said, you know, looking forward to seeing what he can do in Miami. You want to hear something fascinating via the tennis abstract singles forecast? By the way, the correct answer would have been no. You're like, I'm good. I don't need to hear it. But the fascinating tidbit right now, tennis abstract singles forecast. Favorite to win the event with the Neil Medvedev's exit, Rafael Nadal, 13.6%. Your second favorite to win the event, 13.5%. You want to try and guess who the name is? Is it Tommy Paul? <laughs> you know, first of all, knowing Tennis Abstract's rating like I do, it should be Jensen Brooksby just because all things pointing up for him. It's Carlos Alcaraz, 13.5% now. And of course, he was in that Daniil Medvedev section of the draw. But that is fascinating to see the metrics already favoring the young Spaniard and you know, I had a tweet in the queue. I don't think I'm going to end up sending it. We'll see how spicy I'm feeling later tonight. But is the next world number one to take it from a Djokovic or a Nadal going to be Carlos Alcaraz? Like, the answer's not an immediate no. It's not yes. But it's not an immediate no. It's probably no, just given if Medvedev has a good Miami, he can take that number one ranking back right away. But, like, again... It is. It, it It's interesting to see what Medvedev had the number one ranking for two weeks. I think that speaks to the fact, and you look at this draw right now, again, yes, Rafa is undefeated on the men's side, uh, you know, and is off to the best start in his career and escapes with a three-set victory over Sebastian Corda. I still think he's beatable. Like, I know he's undefeated, and yet you look at how he was pushed to five sets repeat, you know, multiple times at the Australian Open, how that two days off really did seem to benefit him, obviously much more so than Medvedev, who got pushed in that semifinal uh, and only had the day, uh, the day off in between. It just, you look at this draw, and it, it very much feels like it's a reflection of the openness right now at the top of the ATP Tour. And I'm not saying Daniil Medvedev and, you know, Tsitsipas and, you know, Zverev's of the world don't have a leg up right now in terms of the results they've already accumulated. But obviously, Carlos Alcaraz, this number reflects that fact. He is on the rise. Yannick Sinner is the only prohibitive favorite entering the round of 32. And he's taken on a guy in Benjamin Bonzi who had historic levels of success on the ATP Challenger Tour that were overshadowed by Talon Greekspoor's even more historic levels of success uh, last season. But you're talking about a guy who won six challengers last year. Like, even that should be a good match. Across the board, like, let's play a game of Speculation Jones. Since, again, we're going to have some fun here. 45 minutes, this is a way to keep things condensed. Speculation Jones being, of course, I'm going to ask you, prohibitive favorite or not? Will you look at the, is is Hubie Hercots a prohibitive favorite over Stevie Johnson at Indian Wells? Um, <laughs> exactly. I feel like I don't exactly. know anymore. I mean, it's just, it's a weird, it's a weird, I mean, granted, the draw is already a bit, messed up. And we know why, because, you know, Novak Djokovic withdrew at the last minute. That definitely didn't, you know, we could have had it maybe things reshuffle just a little bit differently. Maybe it would end up being a bit more balanced. We're certainly seeing an unbalanced draw right now. And, and 
it's so hard I'm gonna not to blame it on that way. on element. And and this is why I'm very happy to have you because I'll interrupt you carefree. I apologize. I don't think it is unbalanced. I think it's fairly balanced. Like, yes, Nadal, Medvedev, Tsitsipas all being on the same side of the draw at the most macro level, fine. That's a bit unbalanced. But you look at these individual matchups, I mean, across the board, I think it's pickums. Like even Berrettini, Lloyd Harris. Well, who's going to serve better on the given day? Whoever does probably wins that match. Tommy Paul, Demon Hour. How are you going to hit a winner in that match? Like, good luck getting the ball past your opponent in that one. Talk about 20, 25 shot rallies. All of these matchups up and down the board. Like, no one's talking about the Indian Wells final rematch in Cam Nori, Nicholas Basilashvili. But, like, that's not a horrible match either in the round of 32. We've seen what Basilashvili is capable of when he's swinging freely. I think the draw is pretty balanced across the board. I get, again, from the macro perspective, and this gets back to my parody idea. Like, I don't think Stevie J is that prohibitive of an underdog. He won the 2020 Indian Wells Challenger, looked great in his win over Karatsev. This surface, because of the rotation on his forehand and the extra ability to run around the ball and find forehands because of the slowness of the surface, it just, like... It fits him really well. He might be the one outlier. Other than that, it's like Botic versus Kesmanovic, two guys who have been really good over the past three months for Kesmanovic, six to seven months for Botic. Like, I think it's pretty balanced. Unbalanced may not have been the right word, but I just wanted to interrupt to say what Alex is describing, ATP fans, is a WTA draw. I know. Embrace it. (laughs) Love it. Every match is a tipping point. We have no idea who's going to be in the next round because every single player has a decent shot at winning their match. And you can have a really wacky last day draw because eight matches can go the wrong way. Seen it happen before. I've seen it happen a lot of times. It's happened a lot in the last couple of years. Buckle up and hang on to your hats because things have gotten, or things are about to get really weird, I think, over the next couple of weeks because we do not have Federer and Djokovic anchoring three quarters of these semifinals. We have Nadal who is potentially running on fumes. I think the fact that he's been able to win a lot of these tough matches just goes to, it speaks to a level of experience and ability to play within himself, to save himself for the most important moments, the way he came back against Korda. Uh, Illustrative of that, you know, didn't waste too much energy falling behind 5-2, but certainly put his foot on the gas when he saw Korda shaky towards the end of that one. You know, he certainly one that can be anchoring these semifinals, but we don't know. One early loss, one, you know, one tipping point match, and... You know, you're you're ending up with a potential uh, Hercast Center final, much like we got in Miami last year. We, who knew how much that match would be forecasting what we're in for for the next couple of months on the ATP tour? He's got two thumbs and he's on this side of the microphone. This guy knew. <laughs> this guy knew, David. But I think we just found our title for the podcast episode: the WTAification of the ATP tour. I think that's an excellent comparison. And again, I think that is something to embrace. There's something to the parody, to the chaos at the same time. And you look at a guy like Rafa, who the numbers right now are just laughable. It's fourth highest hold percentage of his career. He's what, 35 years old right now. Like at a certain point, what are we doing? If you're telling me any human being on this planet is from another planet, LeBron's probably one you know, Serena, Giannis, because you're just like, these athletes are other specimens. Nadal is on that short list, though, where it's like this guy is from another planet. And you can see just, again, his ability to dig himself out of that Sebastian Corda 5-2 deficit. And you have to feel like after he comes off the court, does he say to his camp, like, that's why I pulled out of Miami? He's like, so I could do that match and still be like, you know what? I'm emptying the tank here because you're right. It does feel like there's some fumes there and it does feel like, He's certainly beatable. At the same time, 
I think some of these guys are playing well, you know, because we have this discussion when it comes to the WTA tour. There are a lot of good players. Is anyone great? I think there are a lot of guys on the precipice of greatness right now on the ATP tour. Obviously, I think Medvedev, Tsitsipas are really close. Medvedev's already got a Grand Slam title. He's been ranked world number one. You could argue he's already there. Everything Alcaraz has done, winning over 70% of his matches on the ATP tour over the past 52 weeks. You win 70% of your matches over 52 weeks, you're a top 20 player, as his ranking now reflects. He is on the precipice. I think Sinner's had a very similar rise. I think he is right there as well. You know, the Rudes, Hercotses of the world, Rublev's, Berrettini, they're kind of stuck in neutral right now in that good, not great gear. But it does feel like all of these players are knocking on the door, right? And one big title and one big confidence boost. Like if if Carlos Alcaraz wins Indian Wells, what we say 30% of people would pick him as their choice to win the French Open. Like I really do think if that ended up happening, that would be the everyone's cool pick is I'm going to go with Alcaraz. Like that is what would be the trendy pick if you're trying to be a bit different in your role on Garros bracket pools. Like, I feel like he's one title away from everyone. Just the conversation is done. He is one, he is one of the best on, I mean, I think we're already having that conversation, but we're having that conversation right now. Okay. But I I think think, one big title for a couple of guys, like, right. It's not just Alcaraz. Well, I think part of the problem with the ATP over the uh, problem, some would say it's a good problem to have is that that three (laughs) players have been hoarding all of the major resume bullets for a lot of years. The women have had a different issue. It's not for lack of trying. They've certainly had opportunities, but they haven't been stepping up to the plate. So you have this sort of middle middling, you know, middling effect on both the ATP and the WTA. But I do think we're seeing on the men's tour, there are some players who are trending up. You certainly have Nadal standing at the top. You have Medvedev right underneath. And I'm inclined to put Alcaraz as sort of that tier three, someone who's trending up, really threatening to be. And it seems like recency bias, but just the way that he looks on tour, sort of the, the Rafa, lineage, the, the mythology of that, that you can all, that you can apply to Alcaraz just makes him seemingly a very safe bet, despite being someone who is only won one ATP 500 title. And that was just a month ago in Rio. So it's, it's, it feels like a lot to be putting on one guy, one very young guy who's still not achieved a ton, but we predict so much of him just based off of what he, why is she a witch? Cause she looks like one. Why, why is he, <laughs> why is he a top guy? Cause he looks like he's going to be one very, very soon. That's that's fair. And by the way, right now, as we're speaking, Rafa seven five five three serving for the match against Dan Evans. So it looks like he is going to get through through the round of sixteen, and that would be a potential semifinal. Alcaraz Nadal, boy, do you think Rafa plays that match sleeveless just to honor like the homage and to one another, and they both go, "Hey, let's rock capris. Like, let's really make this a." Uh, court Nadal sort of thing. I think that would be the ceremonial thing to do. I think if I was Nike, I would send a pair of capris to both guys right now and say, hey, you might need these. He takes that slice of birthday cake from Madrid that he's been having kept in the freezer for the last year and he brings it on court. Hey, remember this? Look okay. what happened in a year. So you want to hear Look a fun story, fun story about a birthday cake piece that's been saved. So my grandma, God bless her, love her, uh, Nana, who listens to the occasional pod, no way she's going to listen to this one. It's a Monday on, in March, no chance. Um, she, although if she found out you were on my TV screen, maybe then she would, but she Saved birthday. So, you know, when you're 13, you have a bar mitzvah as a Jewish man and I am a Jewish man. So I had a bar mitzvah and, you know, we had a little bar mitzvah celebration afterwards and there was a big cake. And my grandma saved part of that cake in her freezer for like seven years until there was this 
three day blackout and we were cleaning out her freezer and my dad discovered the cake and was like, this is going, it's time for this to be thrown out. Anyways, she saves this slice of cake. Why is that significant? I had pneumonia during my bar mitzvah, which was quite the affair from what I remember. And I, you know, there's the birthday can or the bar mitzvah candles or whatever on the birthday cake. And I blew them out. And my uncle always tells the story of, and I knew that moment that cake had pneumonia. And it was like, and I am not going to touch that cake. And your grandma has saved a piece in the freezer for seven years. So birthday cake freezer, not a good, I always say, just eat the birthday cake in person. Why? Who moves cake to the freezer? Oh, I do. I had a birthday cake in my mom's freezer that I was slowly eating, feeding off of like over the course of two or three years. Every time I would come visit, I would just get a slice out of the freezer uh, with the frost on the, the counter. Magnolia Bakery, highly recommended. Okay. Better than what I usually do, which is just eat the whole cake in my fridge. So I don't mean to slow burn. I don't mean to indict your relationship with your mom. And maybe this actually speaks to your discipline, but it took you three years to finish a birthday cake and visits to your mom. Like that tells me it would take me like six visits. So that's, you know, less than three. Years. It wasn't always top of mind. And when it's wrapped uh, in that foil, okay. you kind of forget. And then you always bring in fresh desserts. So it's one of those things where the, when there's okay. nothing around, oh, isn't there still birthday cake in the freezer? I believe there is. Let me go get it. <laughs> okay. So there were still other dessert options. That's oh, what I was. Okay. That's what I needed to make sure. That makes much more sense. But no, I mean, again, when you look more broadly at this men's side, and then I want to switch over and talk about the women here. But uh, as you look again, Brooksby's demolition of Karen Hatchnov. And I've been texting this question to some of my friends in tennis circles who will entertain me about this sort of topic. Was Karen Hatchnov's 2018 an aberration? Has he, you know, maintained his level, but the rest of the field has gotten extraordinarily better because watching Brooksby break him down the way he did. And in the end, Brooksby 0-3 over Hatchnov and Brooksby's now 21-9 and to kick off over the last 52 weeks of ATP play, which is, again, just laughable how good Brooksby has been. And yeah, it's a lot of hard court matches, but it works. The break percentage is real. It may not be the flashiest holding of serve, but the man just hits his spots. He broke Karen Hatchinov down. And, you know, I would go back to the 2019 Indian Wells where Hatchinov was up a set and a break on Rafa and Rafa's knee was bothering him and he had to get his knee wrapped and he was cramping during it. And then he ends up beating Hatchinov in three sets. And ever since that match to me, you know, that elite level that Hatchinov obtained in 2018, it's just eluded him. And I'm curious if you see what I see. Is it just, again, to me, I view it as the rest of the field has gotten better while his game has stayed rather static. You know, the serve, the forehand, the physicality, I think it works. I think it works best in a three out of five set format. But I do think two out of three sets, like if the opponent can handle the heaviness of his first serve, get their return away from that spot, he just doesn't have that many other options. I think when you have a flaw in your game, it eventually it shows up. And I think that's sort of been the case for Hatchinoff with that extreme grip forehand. I mean, watching him play Shapovalov at Wimbledon last year was really quite um, educational for me because seeing him around all these years kind of thinking that, you know, he should be a top player. He should be in movies. You know, he just seemed like the sky sure. just seemed to be the limit for, for Karen Hatchinov. And yet I think just... That forehand breaks down too easy. It is not built to be a long-term successful weapon. And I think on the men's game, you really do need consistent weapons. And if you're going to have a weird game like a Daniel Medvedev, you need to have a tremendous amount of consistency 
and a good amount of power. And I, which is why I'm also reticent to really go all in on Brooksby as fun and for the lols as his game seems to be. I mean, I think ultimately, I don't, I, I, as much as I appreciate Riley Opelka's glowing endorsements of Jensen Brooksby, I do wonder with repeated exposure, how well Brooksby's game stands up. You know, I think that's just, that's the question right now, because I think right now we're in that honeymoon phase with him that we were sort of in with Hatchnova a few years ago. Now, will that game stand up to increased scrutiny, repeated pressure, all that. So you've moved up to third in the Cracked Rackets power rankings of most appearance by someone who's never worked for Cracked Rackets and bravo to you. I expect to see it. In Where's my W-2? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, you're got, I got taxes to file. Yeah, <laughs> W-4. Um, no, I expect to see it in the Twitter profile. But the reason why is because as for the lols as Jensen Brooksby is, that might be the best description I've heard of his game to date. For the lols is just... That's just exceptional. Um, first of all, Karen Hatchinov was the stunt double, double for Gale in the Hunger Games. We all know that. He is a Hemsworth, and he's always got that to fall back on. But the thing is, structurally, I like his backhand. Like, I think it's pretty condensed. I think he hits through it well. I think he's six foot six. He's a pretty solid mover. That forehand's just big. And on a quicker surface, you're going to get served. You know, again, it's a less extreme version of the Francis Tiafo forehand where opponents do consistently pick on it with pace. And now you've got a plus one ball that you can hit to his backhand. And while I think he's got a powerful first step, he's not doesn't quite have the fluidity of Daniil Medvedev. And it's actually fascinating to maybe just me, but like that Andre Rublev has become a better mover than Karen Hatchinov and that both Medvedev and Rublev have left Hatchinov, not in the dust, but they've ascended to a level that he has never reached. And after he was the fastest starter of the bunch, it is just a fascinating development to watch unfold. And yeah, again, we joke for the lulls, but Brooksby's another one of those guys on the right week in the right conditions. If you're not playing well, he's just going to beat you. And he has quickly ascended into the top 50. A guy like Tommy Paul, who takes it to Alex Virev. Do you want to give two minutes on this before we switch to the women's? Because I know that oh, was a I could talk here. for hours. Yeah, talk to, me about, uh, talk to me about Ostapalko. <laughs> I mean, it just felt like there were no... It, it's really a shame that that match happened as late as it did on the East Coast because it really felt like that match was a no skips sort of affair. I mean, just sort of the the return winners, especially the way that they were juxtaposed against sort of the self seriousness yes. of the Alexander Zverev serve wind up. You felt like something huge is always going to about to come over the net, and the way Tommy Paul was able to repeatedly pick it off and then later in the match bully him in some multiple double faults, a la you know Jennifer Capriati, Martina Navratilova, nineteen ninety Wimbledon. I mean, that's nineteen ninety one Wimbledon. I should say. I mean, that is. That is hilarious stuff for somebody who likes to see justice done. And, 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 and it couldn't have happened to a better person. I think Tommy Paul's really been working towards this result, as you have covered on Twitter, this sort of slow burn up the rankings, you know, culminating with that title uh, last fall in Stockholm. Was yeah, it? You know, sure. yeah. And, and, you know, we're really seeing this maturation of this, these, these three guys of Opelka, Fritz and Paul. And maybe it was. And Francis took, who and I think Francis, belongs yeah. in that discussion. Cause I think it's that group of four, but sorry, go on. No, I mean, mentally, I, I think of them in that yeah. picture where they, where they pick up the super yeah, surfers where they're from like that. They, they had busted out of that Nickelodeon sitcom that yeah. was playing in my head. The Fritz and, and wedding groomsman is what I refer yeah. to him as. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we're seeing this generation of sort of mid twenties guys, yeah. you know, really breaking through on tour right now. And it, I, I, I don't think it could come a moment too soon, given the sort of uncertainty of what's happening with these draws. This is the moment. These are the moments we were talking about, I think, even a few months ago, like these chances for these guys to make big runs. 
these are the draws to be doing it in because really everything is is on the table right now. Yeah. Our friend Chris Otto wrote a piece, Most Americans into the Round of 32 at Indian Wells, American Men, excuse me, since 1994. I mean, all of these comparisons keep coming back to the 90s, and that is what's held up as the golden era. We're not quite there yet, but to be great, you have to be good first. And there are a lot of apples. I was having this discussion on an earlier podcast by 2025 U.S. Open, right? There should be six Americans seated at the 2022 U.S. Open. Fritz, Opelka, Tommy, Tiafo, Brooksby, Corda. They should all be seated come that event. And if they're not, I think that's a disappointment. And if you have six guys seated at a slam, one of them's going to make the second week. And God willing, one of them's going to be in a position to make a quarterfinal. And again, that's just how you get in the ball game. So I would agree with you. March 14th, 2022, I keep saying we'll move on to the women, but I have to ask this question. I'm going to check in on you. I'm going to ask it every time you come on the pod from here on in. American male who's going to end the season ranked the highest is? I mean, I said it on the chat a few hours ago. Recency bias, I'm going to say Tommy Paul for the lols mostly, but I think think I'm going to go with him. I just think he still has the completest game, and I think that he's got the the goods, and I think it's slowly coming together, and I think, you know, Fritz has had a few more opportunities and has Fritz and Opelka both, I think have had maybe more opportunities and haven't converted them yet. I still haven't seen and maybe been disappointed by Paul yet. So I'm still in a bit of a honeymoon phase with him. Sure. By the way, in that group chat you alluded to, which is called I was right, you were wrong, titled by yours truly. I was mocked for my, not by you, but by the other member of the group for my Marketa Von Drusova love prior to the event. Marketa Von Drusova, 3-6-7-5-7-6. She knocks out Annette Conteve. I was right. You were wrong. It's okay. We know. We move on. Although, who is the picture in that group chat of I was right and you were wrong? Is it you? It's Annette Contavite. Uh, <laughs> well, so we're really you, covering all our bases here. Yeah, at this Which was the magic. foundation of all of it. You're right. That's very, very true. I like that. Which actually circle. is the original sin because now a loss like that on behalf of Annette Contavite <laughs> sort of makes me think that I was right and maybe you were wrong. Yeah. Look, why the title works so well is it applies to everyone but Ben. Like never is he right and we're wrong. That's the one thing we don't have to worry about. But I agree. It's very well applicable to you. With them in mind, let's talk about the women's draw and you look right now your favorite entering today's second half of the round of 16 Iga Sviantek who really has just been so freaking good since the start of the uh since the, the tour restarted post pandemic and you look over the last 52 weeks and you know I love my top 10 top 15 2025 club David only one player ranks in the top 10 in both hold and break percentage now she's you know like ninth in hold percentage but the only player to do it is Iga Sviantek. And we have constantly had the conversation of who is on the precipice of joining Ashley Barty in that they're, you know, great category right now because there are a lot of really good, but is there anyone who's also great? You look for Iga, the way she beats Clara Tossin in three sets, the way she's able to weather that storm, problem solve, make that match physical. That's just a really good win from Sviantek. And obviously you look at the rest of the draw, things have opened up. Yes, Simona Halep, who has just been, when we talked about this last time, so I don't want to repeat ourselves too much, quietly excellent here, or quietly very good, not excellent, but quietly very good. Uh, Again, really since the start of the 2020 season, this is the prime of Simona Halep's career. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. The stats say it, the eye test reflect it, but that's really it. Yeah, like Madison Keys is sitting in that top half as well. Other than that, those are your three pretty comfortable favorites on the top half. 
Today's bottom half matches are fascinating across the board. Von Drusova Conteve, obviously being one of them. Maria Sakari, she has consolidated her spot in the top 10, not to quote my own tweet, but she really has. You just look at, you know, 13 and four here to start the season has been rock solid, just dismisses uh, Kvitova, who hasn't been playing great, but has, you know, again, made that match look like it should given Kvitova's recent form. I'm very excited to see Vika versus Rabakina. I think that one is, is, again, fireworks. Outside of that, like, I feel like Iga is right now not the prohibitive favorite, but she's the favorite. Yeah, I think it really, it's, it's taken me this long to kind of come aboard the Ika Express in 2022. I really wasn't sold on her performance in Australia, even though she didn't make the semifinals the way that Kaya Kanepi was able to club her for a set and a half. I didn't really feel like that had long-term potential, but the seven-match winning streak, and more importantly, the amount of matches she's starting to win from a set down, I think, and she mentioned this in her press conference yesterday. I mean, you go back to 2021, I think of her last eight matches of the season where she lost the first set, she only won one of those matches. And I think this year already, she's won something like three out of five or four out of six, something like that. I mean, it's just a tremendous flip that she's able to shake off the disappointment. She credits the work with the sports psychologist for really helping her focus. And I feel like for somebody who... um, has had that brand of somebody who has everything all together, things are actually really starting to come together in a, in a way more seriously, even than it was last spring when she was really dominating the field in Rome and everyone was just assuming that she was going to, you know, romp to a Nadal-like uh, streak at Roland Garros. I feel like now she's really embracing the highs and lows of a match. She's able to play well when she's playing well and maybe play well when she's not playing so well. And that's, that's super important. I mean, we're seeing also the, the conditions bear out against Clara Towson. I mean, that flat game just really didn't stand up to the, the slower courts and, and Iga with all her, all her spin, her spin, her spin and variety um, really wins the day here. And so I think she's looking to that semifinal between Halep and Svantec. I feel like that would be quite bonkers. I mean, certainly Iga and Simona are, quite um, integral to one another's trajectory over the last couple of years. Ego was the player who beat Simona and took her out of the running to finish 2020 at number one. And has really helped, which really helped Ash Barty be number one as uninterrupted as she has been over the last couple of years um, in, the, in, in other respects. Yes. Yeah, so I, yeah, Iga's the favorite to me to win this title. I mean, I'm, I want to see more from Paola Bedosa, who played a great match against uh, Teresa Martzenkova, who she never beaten before. But otherwise, I think, yes, those are my those are my couple of top three, four uh, picks to, to do, do well at this tournament. There are a couple of really complete players who just really do have the entire package, whether it's from a physicality standpoint, whether it's from the weapons they have, their ground strokes, no identifiable weaknesses. And I think the short list of players you would put on that list right now, Annette Conteve very much belongs there. I think Paula Bedosa, when she's healthy and clicking, very much belongs there. Maria Sakari, while the first serve has improved over the past seven seasons and does get better and better and better, you know, I, I think she would be more in the complete player camp than in the power tennis player camp. I think Iga would be in that complete player camp as well. The difference between her and those other players I listed is you see the confidence in the weapons building. And the rotation and the action on her forehand, it just seems easier for her to get to that big ball where she's stepping into it and, you know, and imparting her own pace onto the ball as opposed to absorbing and redirecting on that forehand wing in particular. She just does it better now. And on these courts, I mean, if she has time to line it up, she'll flatten it out and you're just in trouble. The backhand has never been an issue. She can incorporate serve and volley. She's comfortable moving forward. An incredible combination of power and fluidity as an athlete. 
we've all seen all of the pieces and certainly they came together so well at that 2020 French Open, but she's starting to do it more consistently now. She's starting to do it on hard courts just as well as she does on clay courts. And I just, again, it's the complete package plus. It's just that she also has the weapons as well. It's, I I do think she's taken another leap forward here. The numbers would indicate as much also, but I think the eye test wise, like I do think there's a new confidence in her forehand. Absolutely. And she's just a superior competitor to Maria Sakari, who all credits to Maria has really held her, held her own the first couple of months of the season. I, I, I predicted there would be something of a dip, but she has really held strong while everybody else has kind of struggled to usurp her. I mean, she's just very much always in the conversation, has that amazing athleticism, consistency to just be in the conversation. She's one of the few players who you can really rely on to make it deep into the quarterfinals. The problem is, is that when she gets into the quarters and semis, then things start to fall apart for her. And she just kind of becomes a footnote on someone else's better results. So that's sure. really the transition that she needs to make. Um, but yeah, like you said, I mean, we saw Iga at her very, very best, you know, at Roland Garros 2020 and Rome 2021. And now we're starting to see her in other gradations of good. And I think that's really where the learning happens for someone who really does seem to be a student of the game, who wants to be the best she can be in all situations. And she's getting, I mean, she's still, she's only 18 months older than Clarice Towson, which is really a fascinating um, stat in and of itself, because Iga has seemingly lived an entire lifetime on tour where Clara is just starting to find her footing on, on elite stages. So she's already achieved so much in such a small amount of time that um, I certainly condemn myself a little bit for maybe being harsher on her and maybe not (laughs) giving her the time to really find herself because I was starting to get a bit impatient with where where the next step was going to come. It's interesting to hear you say that. And I know, again, I'm quoting my own tweets here. Felix Ogier-Aliassime is a month younger than Sebastian Corda. He's two months older than Jensen Brooksby. He's been a part of our lives forever. And it's just like, no, he's actually still just a baby boy. Like he now at this Indian Wells, after losing, he could go get hammered because he was like, yeah, I'm finally old enough to go to the bars and do what I got to do. Um, yeah, I mean, you look for Igas. She's 61 and 21 since tour play resumed post-pandemic or during this pandemic, I suppose. And you look for her again, the ranking split. She's just popping everyone she's supposed to pop against players ranked outside the top 20. She's 50 and 11 during this stretch of time. Like if you don't have an elite weapon, if you don't have the ability to match her physicality right away, you're just not in the ball game with her. And so I do think she is the favorite right now amongst the field, but I would say this, it's really nice to see Madison keys duplicating her success here at Indian Wells, because of course, one-off runs, I don't want to say have been a staple for Madison Keys because she did have some consistent play, particularly at the big events. But it's nice to see her bring her best at the big events consistently here to start 2022. Outside of that, like Kirstea making a top 20 push is a great story for the hardcore nerds. We've talked about Halep before, and we did that last time you were here. I don't think there's any new information there. You know, Shelby Rogers playing well. I guess Kuder Matova? Like second, you know, it's the second consecutive season. She started the year really, really well. Um, I mean, I don't know what other things have stood out to you at this uh, through this event on the women's side, other than the Sviantec rise. Did Kudermertova play a noteworthy match at this yeah. point already? I don't remember. <laughs> well, that's going to be our final topic. Exactly. Um, no, I mean, I can't help but uh, chuckle at um, the resurgence of uh, Layla Fernandez over the last couple of weeks, who has won 
in the, over the course of two weeks has won two matches, one because of an electrical outage and two because of an acute illness that seemingly like yeah. overtook Amanda Anisimova in seemingly out of nowhere after having all those match points. Jenny Jang in the chair was trying to keep Amanda from retiring and was and Amanda was not having it. She was feeling sick and wanted to get the hell off the court. Um, but that is the kind of um, tenacity, I guess you could say, you know, keeping yourself in these in these matches, keeping giving yourself opportunities to stay alive that I think is going to continue to be rewarded for Fernanda. She's a consistent player. She's a very good competitor. I kind of, I really didn't expect much from her, especially after the early exit in Australia, but I kind of, I'm starting to think that we're going to see another deep run from the Canadian, either here or elsewhere. She's got, she's got the rematch against Shelby Rogers who beat her at this tournament a few months ago in a third set tiebreak. But I think uh, big things to come for Fernanda. I think ultimately that kind of luck and, you know, you kind of make your own luck after, after a while. And I think, you know, stringing it, excuse me, stringing together these kinds of matches will ultimately um, serve her well in the long term. I guess the only other thing I wanted to point out, I mean, um, good for Von Druseva, but that lost to Contabite, that lost for Contabite, not great. You know, it's just another big stage tournament that she's exiting early at. And just when all eyes are on Annette, she's not converting and it's still not happening. I think, you know, Miami is going to be another big opportunity for her. She's made the semifinals of that tournament before. So that's a comfortable surface for her. Maybe she's one of those players who does better Miami than Indian Wells. She didn't make the quarters in Indian Wells a few months ago. So, you know, it's just, these, these are starting to really pile up for somebody who, again, was not always tagged as being the, the, the stiffest competitor was really starting to shake that dust off. And yeah, great for keys. I mean, she's certainly got um, a draw that is conducive to making quarterfinals. She's going to qualify Harriet yeah. Dart next. Marquette von Drews was 31 and 10 since the Olympics started. 31 and 10. That's ridiculous. I'm just saying, and I've said this coming into the year, and she's someone I'm keeping my eye on. The Sakari Conteve jump, if you're looking for who that player is going to be, she was someone you had boldly circled at the start of this season. And I do think we're seeing that manifest itself. And it's a 7 6 in the third loss for Conteve. Like, you know, mm-hmm. let's context clear. We'll both have to rewatch the third set and decide if it was a good loss, a bad loss, whatever it may be. But I think this tells me more about Von Drusova. I'm telling you, the Von Drusova breakout's the wrong word, but the Von Drusova consolidation seasons this year. No, I mean, Von Drusova was a very non-joke of a contender to win that 2019 French Open. I mean, she yeah. was one when, when that draw got down to the quarterfinals. She, she was, was the original of- Iga that people were looking at like she can make the final and she did and for a while I for that good 48 hours before that final I thought she had a shot to win the whole thing and then sort of when she got to the baseline I felt oh no it's <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't this isn't going to go well and sure enough Barty was up a quick 4-0 and really never really got it back into that match so I think um and and lost in the final of the Olympics too to to bench it so so big matches sort of maybe still a question mark for Von Drusiva but I think you know an all-court an all-surface player someone who can really you know uh, trouble big opponents clearly as she did against Konzovite. Um, no, by all means, not no slouch of an opponent for Annette, but still, I think it's, these are the matches that Annette really needs to start winning. Yeah, at big it, tournaments fair. soon. I know, <laughs> sooner I know, rather than later. Exactly. I know you got to go. Last question for you, and I know it's going to take more than three minutes to unpack. That's all we have on the clock here. But the story of the weekend as well, Naomi Osaka. You know, obviously moved to tears after the match, after she's heckled during the match by a fan and moved to tears during the match, obviously, as well. And just the entire situation, the reaction to it, what has your immediate response been? Well, part of why I was able to bring up that Jennifer Capriati reference sort of out of the blue was because I revisited the ESPN Sports Century documentary that was done on Capriati back in 2001. And a lot of the ways in which um, the tennis cognoscenti described Jennifer at the time is 
really reminds me a lot of what, how people would describe Naomi, this sort of, you know, uninhibited, bubbly character who was just sort of different than your standard um, tennis player, the way she would answer questions in press conferences, the fact that, you know, John Everett, who was uh, uh, Capriati's agent, didn't give her a media coach because she wanted her to be unfiltered and, again, uninhibited in these in these environments. And we saw how well that worked out for Capriati, which is to say not very well at all for a very long time. And I think we're starting to see that maybe some of those decisions were made again. And I, I hold a lot of people responsible for this continued breakdown of Naomi Osaka. I blame the team who I think really did not have a handle on what I would speculate is a lot of anxiety, if not something that is diagnosable, certainly a degree of Mm -hmm. social awkwardness and anxiety that really needed to be addressed probably more aggressively before she was put out into these situations. I mean, granted things did happen for her very quickly. And then once the ball is rolling, it's hard to turn back the clock, but certainly everybody from the moment she came onto the scene in 2014, she has matured and in many ways found her voice, but is still very much socially awkward and anxious ridden person. And I think that's something that is not conducive to this really hectic, brutal, unforgiving circuit. And I also in some ways blame the media who I feel like maybe didn't do a good enough job of identifying what was actually up with Naomi. I think, you know, we thought that, you know, I don't know if I did, but certainly other people Certainly other people would watch Naomi and I think maybe juxtapose her against other tennis. She's different than other tennis players and not just different period. And I think because she was so refreshing in many ways that people weren't thinking in other scenarios, would this kind of behavior be, and not to say she was behaving poorly or, uh, or badly, but I think there was a level of awkwardness that maybe needed to be dug into and explored before she was put onto these big stages and, and really put out for everybody to make comments and judgments the way I am right now. I mean, I think that this is not, she was not a player who was unfortunately given some of her social limitations was ready for this kind of scrutiny. And I think we're seeing this continue to bear out. I mean, the fact that it did take one person in the crowd to really unravel Naomi, it's, it's a tough one because you have so much sympathy for her as a person. And you just wish that those around her and those within her circle did a better job of protecting her and really preparing her for these, these situations. She said she was ready to come back and play this season. Maybe she wasn't. And you worry that maybe this is going to maybe make her take another long break. And maybe we won't see her again for several more months. The clay court season's coming. So, I mean, maybe we won't see her again for, for, for a long time. And I think, I think a decision needs to be made in, in the terms of what can we do to address all that's all that makes up Naomi. And we certainly don't want her to be a different kind of person and she won't ever be a different kind of person. But I think there's something that needs to be done to make her just mentally, mentally stronger. She's a phenomenal competitor, but I think just mentally as a person, something needs to be done. I think, I think it's, it's gone on too long. Given the IMG ties, you imagine we'll see her in Miami, right? Because it just, it's hard to see her skipping that event. And she just got in with her ranking no longer needs the wild card. So we'll see there. You're absolutely right. Like most importantly, Naomi Osaka needs to be the place where she can be the killer. We've all seen her be on court and right now she can't be. You're absolutely right. It's just clear that, you know, again, for because there are always going to be hecklers and she's dealt with them their entire career. And this is not to justify the heckling at all. But normally that's something she has been able to box out in the past. Certainly there has had to have been a heckler in a past match that she was able to look past and not be distracted is the wrong word by, but not be put off by. And in this instance, she wasn't able to. And I don't think that has, I mean, certainly uh, you would imagine performance on court bleeds into everything else. But 
again, fundamentally, I agree. We're just, this isn't, we're not seeing the Naomi Osaka of the end of 2020 and the start of 2021 right now. And until she can be in that place, it's unreasonable for any of us to expect her to perform at that sort of level. And then again, everyone else is really good. You have to be locked in. Otherwise, the, the field has caught up and there are too many people nipping at the bit looking for these opportunities. And so I agree with you. Obviously, the, the way the entire thing has been handled, this was just a recipe, a cesspool of disgustingness across the board and you know all of that. Um, uh, whatever. I have some other takes that I, I, not about Osaka from Indian Wells that I want to discuss as well, but we're going to save that for next time. I know you got to go as always quickly plugs. What can we expect? It's been a slow, slow March over the last couple of weeks. I've been recapping a match. No pun intended. I'm not. Yeah. It's been a slow March. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, It's been a slow March through March. Lousy March weather. Um, But it's, (laughs) yeah, I'm, Doing what I can from afar. I just recapped Medvedev of Monfils. Hope to get some quotes in from that press conference later today. Um, going to be on uh, Curio's rude watch later today to see if they kiss during the match. Yeah. You know, fingers crossed. <laughs> Is but, that um, watch for tennis.com or watch for personal enjoyment? Well, for both. I'm, yeah. I'm going to be watching it more for more like a pop culture perspective. And I won't be doing the hard ins and outs, <laughs> but if something wacky happens, I'll certainly be covering it for, uh, for baseline. Over, over, under three and a half Real Housewife gifts tweeted out during that match. Depends on how late they get on court. Yeah. If, if it's if it's early enough and I'm feeling in good flow, then maybe a good like 15 to 20. But it could, it could be a very professional, normal match. But I, I think just sort of given a lot of the external energy that's being put on sort of this mm-hmm. sort of ultimate contrast in personalities, I, I'm hoping for something wacky dacky to happen. Yeah. Well, you are far too kind. I am immensely grateful for your patience, immensely grateful for the work of our super producer, Daniel Westoff, and the editing job he does day in, day out. Immensely grateful for the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point as well. Go to tennis-point.com to get the latest and greatest. Use our promo code CR15 to let them know we sent you there. Again, we're back, folks, every day. We're going to be talking all things Indian Wells. We're going to be doing it across our podcast. I am guaranteeing, like my friend Rashid Wallace, not my friend, but obviously someone I rooted for over the years, guaranteeing we will have an another David Kane appearance here at some point over the next week throughout this event or at some point in the sunshine double because I know you do have a real life job uh, as well Uh, with all that said for the fantastic David Kane our super producer Daniel Westhoff our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network I'm your host Alex Gruskin David what do we tell our listeners and that's the break (laughs) and we will see you all tomorrow thank you as always David